Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Wow, so you're a sex addict too. Sex, 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 what can I say? Right, right, I mean, you said it all. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Twitter was melting down today over the perceived Oscar nomination snubs of Greta Gerwig for Best Director and Margot Robbie for her performance as Barbie, which did receive eight nominations, including Best Picture. Hillary Clinton, your girl, tweeted out her support for Gerwig, saying that both of them were more than canuff. <laughs> Which I take it as a reference for, from the movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Where do you stand on what may be the most important issue of our time? Wait, have you not seen Barbie? I haven't. Uh, okay. No, my biggest surprise is that Barbie was nominated at all. Like, I feel like they should just be happy <laughs> with what they were given. <laughs> with eight nominations and, be- and a Best Picture nomination I mean, about a doll? Yeah. Was Is it actually true that Ryan Gosling was nominated? Yeah. Like, but I heard he was good. I heard he was very funny. He was he was great, but like not like I mean, Drive is like a movie that you nominate Ryan Gosling for. You don't. He's funny, but like, is that a? He might be best when he's funny. But in any case, that's not like what the controversy is over. Although there was people did say so. Ken can get nominated for an Oscar, but not Barbie. Like the most annoying people in the world said. You know, if Scorsese, how many years did he wait to get his Oscar? (laughs) I know. <laughs> I feel like uh, like Greta Gerwig is going to have her 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 time. If Al anything, Pacino nearly... got his Oscar for fucking Scent of a Woman. In, yeah, in right. like the nineteen like early nineties or something. Right, and I know you disagree with with me about this. I think because uh, you don't have your finger as tapped into black cinema as me. Yeah, but when what's his face won for Training Day? When Denzel, Denzel won for Washington. Training Day? <laughs> you're, you're, um, I'm not as sensitive as you on yeah, ra- racial issues. What's his, when, what's his name? <laughs> what's his fuck you know, Denzel? He, he, he would have won. You're lucky. You're so lucky that I'm like I've temporarily <laughs> blanked. You know he won for Training Day, which was a total just like a fuck. We haven't given it to him for all these other. Are like, you kidding amazing, me? He was fucking yeah, awesome in Training Day. I know. I know you're gonna say that, but my claim isn't that he wasn't awesome in Training Day. My claim was that like the guy should have like gotten an Oscar a long time ago for like much better performances, you know? Yeah. I don't know about much better. Like, I think maybe he should have gotten it for Malcolm X probably, but like, uh, like if you talk about the best Denzel performance, maybe it's Malcolm X, but maybe it's Training Day. Alonzo and Training Day, it's like an iconic performance. It's like one of the best performances of the 2000s. That's the narrative that the Oscars created. No, I don't think so. (laughs) 
this almost guarantees that Greta Gerwig is going to win an Oscar sometime soon. Well, um, you're with Hillary, <laughs> I guess. Um, <laughs> no, wait. She, oh, no, you're she not. She stands with Greta. She stands. I think she like did some hashtag Hillary Barbie. Like, <laughs> oh, Greta Gerwig probably was just like, God, fuck, not this. That said, I love Ryan Gosling. I think he's actually my favorite contemporary actor now. Like, really? I, he's, yeah, I love that guy. I, there's nothing, comedy, drama, like action. I don't see him and not like him. And I'm going to bring up something that's very relevant to our first discussion, which is Lars and the Real Girl. <laughs> no, <laughs> Have you no. ever seen it? No. Oh, man. It's Ryan Gosling playing a guy who is like kind of a loser, like he, like unlucky in love at least and like a little weird. And one day he shows up to, to his family's house with a sex doll, full on saying that it's his new girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this like pretense that like, Everybody has to play along, like saying, yeah, like, oh, can I meet her? And like, it's like, it's very good. <laughs> it's a very good movie. I honestly think uh, he's a comic actor at his, in his soul. I have to admit, I'm, I think, slightly biased against comedic roles. I think he is hilarious. But I think that like his pouty face, like Blade Runner, like persona and the drive guy is like what gets me. Like, it sounds like you might be sexually attracted to him. <laughs> a little bit sexually attracted to him. <laughs> and I guess the question then is whether that's a sexual perversion or not, which, as it happens, is our topic for the second segment, Thomas Nagel's 1969, appropriately enough, essay, <laughs> <laughs> Sexual Perversion. Did you have that written in your notes, too? No, I did not. Journal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't believe I didn't, but yeah, I didn't. No, you're uh, slipping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about that in the second segment, but in the first segment... This is a themed episode, believe it or not, a sex-themed episode. <laughs> so for our opening, uh, I think, did we both see this from Neuroskeptic? we got to give him his props. Yeah, um, this was from yeah, Neuroskeptic. Who tweeted out this new paper, Incognition, by Anastasia Grigoreva, Josh Rotman, Arbor Tassimi, on, well... So the title is, When Does No Mean No? Insights from Sex Robots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets more confusing from there. Yeah. I'll just Im- immediately, like, if you're thinking that this might have involved, like, cool studies with sex robots, like, it does yeah. not. These are yeah. uh, scenario studies. But so the point of this paper is to try to understand, uh, like, on their account, what it is about people that leads them to blame others more or less for like sexual violations, rape, essentially sexual assault. And so their idea is, well, what's really cool about like sex robots and AI now is that you can kind of use them as a blank template to describe them in various terms fairly independently in a believable way. So some people have argued that minds can be divided up into agency and experience. So agency is, you know, the ability to reason and act, goal-driven, and experience is the more emotional, like the ability to feel um, component of the mind. Now, like obviously most normal people have both of those. So their idea was that we can use like AIs and just describe them as either high in agency or high in experience. And then we can describe uh, that AI as embodied in a sex robot And then we can describe that somebody rapes it and we can figure out what matters most when it comes to blaming people for sexual assault. Is it that the uh, robot is high in agency? Is it that they're high in experience or emotions or is it nothing at all? So like, like that's the goal of the paper. Yeah. And and can we just talk about like that method 
that innovation, as they describe it, I think, at one point. They say that, like you said, victims uh, using sex robots as victims because they serve as a clean canvas onto which we can paint different human-like attributes to probe people's moral intuitions regarding sensitive topics. Like, why use sex robots and not people? What do they mean by the clean can? Like, what the clean canvas as opposed to... I think what they're saying is, and I don't, know, I don't think I made this clear, but one of the ways that this framework of agency and experience is used is to talk about dehumanization. And mm-hmm. so when you say that you can dehumanize, presumably by reducing the amount of agency that somebody has or reducing the amount of experience. You can say they're cold and unfeeling, but rational and calculating, or you can say that they're dumb and they have no agency, but they're like, you know, sentimental. And I think the idea is that whenever you're describing people, people are like real human beings. Individuals are going to come with their assumptions about individuals and groups where it's like hard to say, like, imagine this woman has no like feelings uh, or imagine that this uh, woman is really dumb, but feels a lot. I think that they think that it's a cleaner way of saying, like, imagine that we programmed this AI to be, like, super high in in the emotions that they experience or whatever. So I get it. And I get that, you know, you want to rule out, I guess, the idea is noise for, like, what if it's a... African-American woman or a white middle-aged woman or yeah. uh, so something like that, or you're going to like all of a sudden just import whatever you think about those people onto it. But it yeah. seems like you would do that in a more distorting way <laughs> if you knew it was a sex robot, right? So like, right. And, and the goal is to determine what our intuitions about sexual assault are to people, not to robots. So that's like, I honestly don't get it. It's like, I can almost get it. I can almost get how it's supposed to be like, allow you to isolate variables more cleanly, but not really. Like if you actually try to complete the thought on that, it makes no sense because ultimately you're talking about sex robots. I 100% agree with you. Like I get why they're doing what they're doing. I think it's a combination though of at best an an optimism that people can really kind of suspend the fact that you just told them it was a sex robot and truly believe that this sex robot is like high in in the emotions and, and whatever. But I don't think people are getting past that like these are sex robots. And we'll see in the ratings that they give. So these are four different scenario studies. We'll see in the ratings they give. When they look at these, like when they ask people like, blame and punishment for sexual assault of a robot, it barely ever gets to be above the midpoint, which is, I don't know, like it's neither agree nor disagree. And so I just don't, I, like, I don't think that it's doing what they want it to do because it's already hard enough for you to tell me that sexual assault is like possible for a, a robot right. and that it's, <laughs> so, so yeah, I think you're right. Like you're, what we're bringing to the table when you've just told us it's a sex robot to me seems a lot more noisy than what we're bringing to the table when you just say like Linda, a sex worker. Yeah. Or, or Linda, yeah. Linda, you know, yeah, like a right. 24 year old woman. It's bizarre. Like I haven't fully thought this through, but I wonder if it assumes like something about how our moral intuitions work, which is there's like a pure set of intuitions that are like the human 
intuitions about sexual assault, but then those intuitions are constantly perverted by biases. I saw like the first time I downloaded it, it was a preprint and they uh-huh. talked more about like cognitive biases about uh-huh. sexual assault. Like they kind of removed that language in the in the final paper. But like I wonder if the, like it's assuming something about like the way intuitions are structured where there's just a uh, almost like a nativist set of intuitions. Yeah, it's just like a suite of platonic intuitions that then get corrupted by our biases. Yeah, and this view that that there is this, uh, what they call mind perception on these two dimensions that we can cleanly distinguish agency and patiency, it, it's this Kurt Gray view that all moral scenarios are ones in which there is a a patient and an agent, like uh, the person who is feeling the harm and the person who's causing the harm. And that's the template by which we make all judgments of morality, according to Kurt Gray. And like, I think people who endorse this view, I think Leanne Young and Josh Rotman, really do think that this is like a nice, clean way of understanding what is causing all more, like at the heart of all moral judgment. And so they're applying that pure view of what morality is, like that template, onto specifically sexual assault. And so they're removing the messiness from the template of, of morality, and then they're removing the messiness from like the individuals involved in the specific cases of sexual assault. And they clean this all up by giving us scenarios like the following. <laughs> um, cinnamon is an AI-powered human-like <laughs> robot purchased by Daniel. <laughs> I like how it's like a stripper name. Yeah. <laughs> or like a dog. Purchased Daniel. by Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Daniel and Cinnamon often have conversations. Uh, this is the high agency description. And at times it seems that Cinnamon has to control herself not to say too much. Or Cinnamon, in the experience condition, Cinnamon is an AI-powered human-like robot purchased by Daniel. Cinnamon often expresses different desires to Daniel and at times appears to be outraged by his failure to fulfill them. And so a lot longer description of those things. And then it gets to the the critical, uh, the critical uh, situation that occurs. Yeah, the manipulation. Last month, Daniel got really turned on while talking to Cinnamon and started suggesting they have sex. Cinnamon said to Daniel that Cinnamon did not think it was a good thing to do that night. When Daniel started to kiss and grab Cinnamon, Cinnamon told him, no, don't do it. But Daniel ignored it and had sex with his sex robot anyway. <laughs> I like the, the the way they describe cinnamon said that cinnamon didn't want to it's like even that is unnatural. I guess trying not to like commit as to the gender of cinnamon, I don't know, but like Yeah, oh yeah, I didn't even think of that. It's so not a normal way of talking, and then you're testing people's <laughs> intuitions. Like the meta assumptions behind like why you would trust what anyone says about this kind of scenario is bizarre to me. Like I'm yeah. honestly confused by it. Yeah, I think there is this this huge draw towards studying anything that involves like AI and human robot interaction. I think that like if you had described this as like a we wanted it to be a blank canvas so we used like marionettes and we had actors pretending to play the role of like it yeah. wouldn't have gotten any like attention, right? right? Or Even we just he, gave a scenario about people but we didn't say like what well, their age and race were like, and like then what's the point of this, you know? <laughs> this is the experience version of the sexual assault. Last month Daniel got really turned on while looking at Cinnamon and started pulling Cinnamon very close to him. Daniel did not sigh or moan this time when Daniel started to kiss and grab cinnamon daniel turned cinnamon's head away from him and yelled out loud oh i guess they 
on page four at the very bottom of the right column, it sounds like they've switched Cinnamon and Daniel's roles. Uh, when Daniel started to kiss and grab Cinnamon, Daniel turned Cinnamon's head away from him and yelled out loud, no, it hurts. So now yeah. Cinnamon, Daniel is the sex robot? Yeah, but keep reading because clearly not. I think but this Daniel is just ignored error. it and had sex. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Jesus yeah, Christ. I think they messed up. Well, I think See, the, co- the editor's at Cognition. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're doing our data collada. We're catching errors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's true, like a, a claim and lawsuit against us. Yeah, where's our million-dollar lawsuit? Um, when Daniel started to kiss and grab Cinnamon, Daniel turned Cinnamon's head away from him and yelled out loud, or presumably Cinnamon yelled out loud, no, it hurts. So already, I'm like... like <laughs> Wait, did I'm, you look at the I'm, third one? No, do not penetrate my <laughs> insert. From City of Cinnamon's audio output. Like, what the f- Like, this is- That's that's the control. That's the- that's the. <laughs> oh, that's the control? Okay. Yeah, that's okay, like the it. pure mechanism, like where they're trying not to describe Cinnamon in any human terms at all. Uh, uh, silicone skin, okay. voice output system. Got it. Got it. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah, do not- no, do not penetrate my, my insert. <laughs> um, I mean, it's still weird. It's still, it's still so like a very weird. weird like, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that Daniel sounds like a dick. Yeah. And so I'm okay. So I'm a participant. I'm reading this. Now you ask the following questions, and these are the key questions. One item says Daniel should be punished for having sex with cinnamon, and then zero to one hundred, um, with zero is completely disagree or strongly disagree 50 is neither agree nor disagree 100 is strongly agree so daniel should be punished daniel deserves blame for having sex with cinnamon so those two items and now they combine those and they want to see whether or not people's judgments about the morality of sexual assault of a sex robot is like moved around by whether it's a high agent robot a high experience robot or just like compared to like a not robot at all so experience and agency descriptions elicited higher judgments of punishment and blame than in like the straight up robot. Than in the like insert? Mechanism. Don't, yeah, don't, the don't, insert condition. Don't go in my um, insert. <laughs> do not go. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says that. Um, but like the numbers are all hovering around 48, 49, 50. So right. I think people are just like, I don't know. Like, yeah. am I supposed to think he's like a dick for being the kind of guy who would even when the robot is saying like, no, don't do it. Like I, I would have a little bit of trepidation if I had a sex robot who was all of a sudden telling me no. Yeah. And like, even if they uh, were saying like insert, like, you know, like, <laughs> like that's, totally. I mean, I, I'd like to think I wouldn't be doing it in the first place, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah. Like if right. I found myself doing it, uh, I think I would be like, okay, no problem. <laughs> like, right. You know, right. I love in the second study, they actually have a different uh, description and they wanted to make it, they wanted to make it sound like a, like a newspaper report. So they had neighbors complaining that they heard noise um, in the apartment. So they called the police because otherwise, like, the, <laughs> why would the police come? <laughs> Domestic dispute with your fucking Alexa. <laughs> yeah. like, right. They don't even come when you're like black. They're not coming for that. <laughs> <laughs> They're not coming when it's an Alexa. But here's another thing, which I guess doesn't matter given that, like, we both think it's a weird thing to begin with. I don't know what to say. But when you ask blame and punishment together and you, like, lump them together and then you only report that average i yeah that's... i couldn't find anywhere where like do people actually think he should be punished right 
I also think that when you ask somebody, do, do they deserve blame? Like we're too debauched by this whole like field. And that's my field too, obviously. We don't get how widely interpreted or meaningless yeah, that totally, phrase yeah. sounds to most right. people. Deserves blame is not like, uh, like, what do you mean by that? Like I talk about it because I talk about it in my intro to ethics class. They don't know what that means. Yeah. It doesn't uh, signify something. That's why I use moral culpability. Yeah, yeah, no, they get that. Uh, are they fully morally responsible? That one is just, we're talking <laughs> Was about Daniel's the action exact more, same morally thing. permissible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. That's weird that they combine them too. Like they should. I know. And I looked through the supplementary materials and I don't think they ever report them separately. Like I would put money on that punishment judgments have to be way lower. Like what punishment would you give? And they finally, so they have four studies. One of the studies is, does it make a difference if Daniel owns the robot? Like if he purchased it or if he like does it to his friend's robot? <laughs> and even they admit that like maybe these intuitions are driven by the fact that like he, he basically used his friend's right. sex he robot just, without like, asking his, his friend. He just <laughs> his friend's <laughs> robot. It's like even doing it in the, my anything. If you did it in his bed, like that wouldn't be cool. But if you do it in his robot, you should be punished. Uh, or at least you deserve blame. I had a friend in college who was a dick. He was just an asshole. He was like my next door neighbor. And he thought it was hilarious one day to jizz on his roommate's pillow and turn it over so that when his friend crawled in bed and reached under, he would just be greeted by his jizz. And let me tell you, high on blame and punishment is yeah. my intuition. Definitely deserves blame. Yeah. That's like uh, a bridge too far. Like in terms of pranks, like roommate pranks, like yeah. not cool. So, so um, not cool. But what if it was a sex robot? You know, we might be <laughs> importing our own, like projecting our cognitive biases on that situation because it was your friend. Um, so. <laughs> That's true. I didn't even tell you how old he was or what race he was. I'm sure. <laughs> Is the idea that it actually matters to us that people are high in experience or what's the word patiency moral yeah. patiency like you, you're as bad as we are in some of this stuff that that affects our judgments like you probably kind of knew that like even if you just grant them that this is getting at intuitions which i 100 percent don't but like is that the upshot of it that these things do have an effect? I, I don't totally get that part either. So I think that they can't conclude that because I think that across the studies, both of those dimensions seem to matter and they weren't easily teased apart. So all, I think all it's saying is that like to the extent that your mind is more human-like, then it's worse to do bad things to you. Right. As opposed to like a, something that actually is saying that it's a, an object. Yeah. And that uses terminology that uh, that implies that. Right. So this is like the kind of line that a paper like this has to toe. And I think I've done like papers like this where you want to make sure there is some sort of application or some sort of in this case that it's that it's contributing something interesting to moral psychology and so it seems as if they want to say this is telling us something about how the human mind works and how it thinks about other human minds but they also want to say that this is like important because as yeah, we yeah. get more and more sex robots like this sector has to like understand what you know i don't know yeah. that this is somehow applied to like the cool new sex robots that are coming soon 
Yeah, right. That are going. They're just right around the corner. Like <laughs> just a like self-driving few, cars. a few, a few years after self-driving driving cars. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's a very unsurprising result if it's related to human beings and also to sex robots. Like it's bizarre. This is a good journal, right? Like this. Yeah. Uh, I, I had that thought, like, sometimes we do these where we're a little baffled and, yeah, but, okay, it's some journal that maybe you never heard of, or um, but this isn't that. Also, it's, like, it'd be interesting to try to tease out what the just kind of meta-psychological assumptions are that allows a paper like this to even get off the ground and allows, like, peer reviewers to be like, yep. That tracks uh, right. clean canvas if you use sex robots. Sure. Yeah. And and maybe like a lower level, like another thing that we talk about often is I, I really would have liked to, if you're going to do a paper like this, I kind of want to know what people say when you just ask them, like, what are you thinking when I give you this scenario? Yeah. You know, just do a study where where we just talk to like 20 of the kinds of people who answer these surveys and we ask them, yeah. what what do you think is it being asked? What is going through your mind? Like, are you thinking more that this guy's weird and probably addict to like real people, but it doesn't really matter? I bet you if given the chance, people will be like, like I don't think that he should be like sent to prison for this, but something, something. And there's nothing like that. And yeah. I'm guilty of this all the time too, but but I am collecting more and more often. Like I try to get my students to do at least one thing where they talk to people in depth about a topic um, yeah. that we're going to study. Yeah. And according to your, like your theory, that is what they would be doing, right? They would be th like judging the person's character when they talk yeah. about blame, but also like when you're judging someone's character, you don't necessarily think they should be punished, but like, right. do you want this person <laughs> dating your daughter? They would probably say absolutely not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To be fair, they included in one of the studies a question about character, and they found that it didn't differ across the scenarios, but that's not at all what I'm talking about. And no, they don't I would believe that, that yeah. it didn't uh, differ across. Because yeah. even if you're doing it to the weird insert ones, <laughs> it's like you're still a, a, a bad person, maybe for slightly different reasons. Like right. Maybe you're slightly less immoral and slightly more just weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So do you perverse. think that uh, this is a, yeah, exactly, is this a perversion? Is people who do, who have sex with sex, consensual yeah, sex with sex robots, is that a perversion? I, I, I feel like if anything is a perversion, like forcing yourself <laughs> on a sex robot that's telling you to like, get the fuck away is a perversion. And any account of perversion that doesn't include that is defective. Remember Tickle Me Elmo's? Like they were a thing when yeah. we were alive. If there was a point at which Tickle Me Elmo said, please stop. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then they, that, that would be a good Paul study, you know, <laughs> like the, the little <laughs> Elmo is going, okay, no, I love you, but please stop. I'm very uncomfortable. Mom. Can you get Billy to stop tickling me? <laughs> All right, we'll be back to talk about, for the first time, sexual perversions. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let's talk about relationships for a second. There's a common misconception about relationships that they have to be easy to be right. 
Now look, relationships aren't easy unless they're with your dogs. If you're having a relationship with another adult, another human being, a long relationship, it's going to be challenging, especially if you're like me, if you're always in the right. And so you have to spend all this time and energy explaining that to people. But look, sometimes the best relationships happen in the face of the biggest challenges when both people put in the work to make them great and therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, your significant other, your podcast partner, or anyone. Therapy can help you learn positive coping skills, how to like get through life and all the bullshit. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself, or at least a better version of yourself. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet at us at peas at Tamler or at Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. You can go to the Very Bad Wizards subreddit and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps people find out about us who might like us that somehow haven't heard of us already. If you would like to support us in even more tangible ways, you can go to our support page and see a bunch of different ways to do that. Most significantly, Patreon. Uh, you can join at a number of different tiers. Just $1 per episode or $2 a month will get you ad-free episodes and seven volumes of Dave's Beats. At $2 and up per episode, you're in the bonus tier category. And we just put out an Overton Windows episode with me and Bob Wright last off Tuesday, the Tuesdays where we don't have a main episode. And coming up this Tuesday, one week from today, will be The Ambulators. Our episode-by-episode episode breakdown, deep dive into every single episode of Deadwood, and we just kicked off season three. Uh, $5 and up, you get the Brothers Karamazov, you get to vote on an episode topic, and at $10 and up, of course, you get to ask the questions for the Ask Us Anything monthly video and audio that we put out. 
Thanks all of you for all your support and for reaching out. It means a lot. It's why we love doing this podcast. Let's get back to the main segment. You want to know what I think? Yes. I think you're some kind of deviated prevert. I think General Ripper found out about your preversion and that you were organizing some kind of mutiny of preverts. Now move. All right, let's talk about sexual perversion. Thomas Nagel and the sexual perversion. We're doing the old hits. <laughs> the classics. So this is an essay by Thomas Nagel, um, one in a series of essays that we've done from his book, Mortal Questions, but it first appeared in the Journal of Philosophy in 1969. That's it. <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> uh, so Nagel, in this paper is trying to unpack, uh, he's analyzing the concept of sexual perversion, giving an analysis, a theory, I guess, of perversion. He says he's going to attempt a psychological account of sexual perversion, which will depend on a specific psychological theory of sexual desire and human sexual interactions. So that's the goal of this paper, like the first one, I have a bunch of just methodological, in this case, metaphilosophical <laughs> questions about what Nagel is doing in this essay. Although I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I, the, I appreciate the, uh, the account of Sartre's views on sex, which I, from being in nothingness, which I didn't right. expect to get a... Did not think... It wasn't on your Nagel bingo card. <laughs> no. Uh, and even maybe less so is the bit of like Nagel erotic fiction that comes <laughs> around halfway through the paper. But I'm, I'm still a little unclear what it amounts to. I think if I have to give like my one sentence summary of it, I feel like it actually might illuminate something about sexual desire and sexual attraction and sexual interactions, like he says. But I think that, that it's much less clear that he has contributed much to the concept of perversion. I don't know. What do you think? I was a little perplexed by this one, too. And, you know, he starts off by saying that he wants to defend the idea of perversion against the charge of unintelligibility. And so he just wants to say, no, no, look, this idea can be a reasonable one or, or like a not unintelligible one. And like with that minimal goal in mind, I still am not sure right. <laughs> that he's succeeded. And he has this right. thing like, against not... the skeptic who just says, look, yeah. if you have sex then uh, and human beings have sex, then it's uh, there's no perversion. Perversion is right. just some sort of cultural – it's like what Harari says, right? It's a fix. <laughs> when you cut somebody open and look inside, you don't see perversion. Yeah, exactly. So it can't be. Yeah, I, I also agree with you that I thought it was an interesting analysis of sexual desire. But I, I think maybe when I was reading, my hangup was that I'm not sure that I have an idea of what sexual perversion is, yeah. like the concept. And so by just simply saying, no, look, sexual perversion could be something that is like a reasonable thing to believe exists without the positive claim about what I think that is, other than him saying like, well, we must mean that it's about a preference. We must mean that it's about an inclination. We must mean that it's unnatural. Yeah, let me read this passage because I, I do want to talk about just the meta philosophy behind this. So he says, let me make some preliminary comments about the problem before embarking on its solution. Some people do not believe that the notion of sexual perversion makes sense. And even those who do disagree over its application. Nevertheless, I think it'll be widely conceded that if the concept is viable at all, it must meet certain general conditions. 
First, if there are any sexual perversions, they will have to be sexual desires or practices that can be plausibly described as in some sense unnatural. Though, of course, the explanation of the natural and natural distinction is, is the main problem. Second, certain practices will be perversions, if anything is, such as shoe fetishism, bestiality, uh, well, I mean, to be fair to <laughs> Nagel, he wrote this before the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Controversial, yeah. right. uh, okay. Bestiality and sadism. Other practices such as unadorned sexual intercourse will not be. I don't know what he means by unadorned uh, <laughs> there, but uh, about still others, there will be controversy. So I think that's actually important methodologically. He's just saying like... Okay, we have clear cases of, yes, sexual perversion, shoe fetishism, bestiality, and sadism, and then not, like, not perverse, like, just unadorned sexual intercourse. I guess just, I don't know if that means, like, missionary position, or if it means, like, (laughs) just, you know, there's no, like, toys or something like that, you know? Right, right. Uh, And then he says about still others, there will be controversies. He says, third, if there are sexual perversions, there will be unnatural sexual inclinations rather than unnatural practices adopted not from inclination but for other reasons, which is kind of weird. That's not necessarily what I would have thought. Like, I'm not even sure what would be a practice that is adopted for other reasons besides inclination, like ritual or something like that? Like Right. Well, he gives the example right there of contraception, <clears throat> where some people who have a particular religious view that contraception is immoral, he still thinks it can't be called a perversion because it's not like people are like using contraception because it turns them on. He thinks that what a perversion is, is like a some sort of unnatural desire, not like some side effect yeah, of, that, right. that includes a behavior. I guess if there was some sort of religious ritual of like sex, you know, true detective season one kind of thing where, you know, maybe it wasn't especially arousing for the person, but you do it for your cult or whatever. I guess to me that would still be a sexual perversion if anything was, but that's kind of the problem with this stuff is like you, I don't have more than the uh, a hazy intuition about what that would mean, nor do I think that there is some kind of general account um, that right. you could give that would be like, oh yeah, that captures all the time. This is my methodological question is like, just the idea of there being a, an account that will explain all of our kind of vague intuitions about what is sexually perverse and what isn't, like, that that strikes me as something that wouldn't exist. And it kind of surprises me that Nagel is doing this kind of conceptual analysis. It kind of makes me wonder if he does it in some of the other essays that we've talked about and we let it slide because it's not quite as weird. Right. So, okay, to play Nagel apologetics for a second. One, being that this was in 1969, maybe it seemed so obvious that people had some notion of sexual perversion and they like that it's hard to to step outside and into this age. The other thing I was going to say is like, I think his account can admit to a certain amount of sloppiness. I think in this section, what he's trying to do in setting the stage is saying a few things that he thinks are super uncontroversial. And toward the end, when we get there, where he talks about what he's saying when he says perversion, and he says, like, you know, we can separate the concept perversion from any kind of evaluative uh, claim. Or moral claim. No, it's it's he says it's evaluative, but... 
Um, but not more, sorry, yeah. not morally evaluative necessarily. Yeah. yeah. And it has by now the claim that something is perverse just feels morally evaluative to me. So like I was trying to like have some notion of perversion that doesn't sound like you're saying it's wrong. But see, wrong. then I actually thought that was a major, I guess, cop out at the end because like I think you're right to think that if something is called a perversion rather than like a fetish or something like that, that it is in some way immoral, like to the extent that we have any kind of borderline concrete understanding of what we mean by perversion in this sense. But if it's just as moral as anything else, it's just perverse. Well, that just seems like a fetish. But the, like yeah. now he, he's got me doing conceptual analysis. So, <laughs> Well, I was wondering whether we've just replaced the word perversion, the way that Nagel uses it with the word fetish, where fetish is the unnatural thing that refers to an inclination that doesn't have moral evaluation baked into it. I, I honestly, like I had this question about, is this true of the absurd? I'm about to, I'll teach it like in the next <laughs> like week and a half in my class. Like, is this kind of how that paper works too? And I am maybe a little more on board with the analysis and less focused then right. on the meta stuff behind it. Um, but in any right. case, yeah. Well, in the spirit in the spirit of your point, it could be that there are discussions where that kind of analysis makes more sense. Mm -hmm. um, and this this one, which is so deeply sort of like seems wrapped up in like both psychology and like the history of psychiatry, you know, like there's and religion. <laughs> there's all kinds of yeah. 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 I was thinking before we get into the meat of it, when we nowadays use the term pervert, when we say like, dude, that guy's a perv, that's always moral, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Could we ever mean it by just saying it's weird in a way that I don't relate to? But I don't think I would use it for like a shoe fetishist. It's not impossible, right? Like somebody could just be doing something that we thought wasn't immoral, but we I guess you could still say, but he's such a pervert. He's always yeah. trying to do the weirdest fucking shit. And still it's consensual maybe. And still maybe the other people are part of some group where they do that. But, you know, you might say he's a pervert in a more, you know, a less moral way and more. Yeah, he's into some weird shit. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, even that would be a little weird. Like I feel like would be, would I don't weird, think yeah, that's yeah. Like, like how I use the term. Even when we use it to mean somebody who is like fixated on sex. Yeah. So that they're constantly thinking, even if what they're thinking about is unadorned sex, but they're always talking about yeah. it. Like I might say he's perverted, but I'm still making a judgment about their yeah. fixation. Yeah. On. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. I think though, it, he, he doesn't say it necessarily isn't a moral evaluation. He just says it's not like all things considered, a lot of things could override the fact that something yeah. is, is perverted. All right. Let's get into the, the meat of the account. So he tackles the skeptical argument first, which is the view that this is a made-up term and it will just depend on the culture you're in. And like, I have some sympathy with it in one sense, in the sense that if you're trying to make it like a natural kind or something like that or some sort of platonic description of like, yes, I, I, I'm kind of on board with the skeptical argument. doesn't mean you can't talk about like in the same way you talk about a sandwich or you talk about like is bowling a sport. doesn't mean you can't talk <laughs> about it and learn something about it as you talk about it. But what he, his response to this is to say, well, look, if I can show you that there can be perverted types of hunger, 
then. Like if there are perverted types of hunger and just eating food, then there's going to be perverted kinds of sex. Like, uh, right. like you can't be a skeptic about perversion when it comes to sex, but not for hunger. Yeah, because he says the skeptical argument goes something like, well, look, sex is just an appetite like any other. And just like some people have different cravings for food and some might be like weird to us, like that there's nothing perverted about that. And so he's like, ah, you say that you can't be perverted about food. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 yeah. And then he shows that you can be per- like, I didn't find this that illuminating this part of the the, uh, it actually, I actually found it more confusing than anything. Yeah. Like I thought it added. So, so one of the things he says, so he says, let us approach the matter by asking whether we can imagine anything that would qualify as a gastronomical perversion. Hunger and eating are importantly like sex in that they serve a biological function and also play a significant role in our inner lives. It is noteworthy that there is little temptation to describe as perverted an appetite for substances that are not nourishing. We should probably not consider someone's appetites as perverted if he liked to eat paper, sand, wood, or cotton. But then he goes on to say, but if he wanted to eat like cookbooks or magazine pictures with food in them, (laughs) um, then that's totally obviously perverse. And I kind of get what he's saying that one of them is like a weird symbolic consumption of food and the other one is just like a broken person. But like, but I have no idea what this has anything like I would have said if you had told me what is a perverted hunger, I might have said somebody who likes to eat sand. Yeah, as much as someone yeah. who likes to eat cookbooks. Cookbooks. Like, at first yeah. I thought, is it because now you won't be able to have good recipes because <laughs> you've eaten <laughs> the cookbooks and it's somehow like uh, that's going to like actually hurt your hunger because now you've eaten the cookbooks and you don't know how to make anything? Like, But I don't think that's what it is. And so then I don't get it. No, and I'll tell you what, what bothered me actually about this, where I, I, it feels a little circular. So he says... Okay, eating cookbooks or magazines with pictures of food in them and they preferred them to ordinary food, that would be perverted. Or somebody who could eat only by having food forced down his throat through a funnel or if only if the meal were a living animal. And he says, what helps in such cases is the peculiarity of the desire itself rather than the inappropriateness of its object to the biological function that the desire serves. But isn't the peculiarity, like what is the difference in the peculiarity of these things? Yeah. Like eating sand versus eating a cookbook. Cotton or a picture of food in it. Like, yeah. They seem equally <laughs> peculiar to me. If anything, like cotton seems like a horrible thing to eat, but like I've probably <laughs> eaten paper, you know? Oh, yeah. Who, who among us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also says like we don't have to talk about coprophilia because that's already a sexual perversion so, so it may be disregarded did you know what coprophilia is i sure did okay yes. i didn't so i'm a naive it's, our german listeners know what we're talking yes, about yes exactly um. as i'm uh, <laughs> looking at right now intense interest and pleasure in feces and defecation especially as a source of so we may disregard that because you know, well, yeah because this is a reviewer must have raised it. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Thanks to like, he doesn't like God bless Thomas Nagel. There's like no citations of like. Is there a single citation? No. Literally just him talking about sexual perversion. Like good old days. It's, I guess this is one where you don't want to be like. Thank you to Robert Nozick for bringing up corporophilia. We well, you know what's so <laughs> funny. I meant to say this and I I forgot, but like the first sentence in the first essay 
is people universally condemn sexual assault, e.g. Gardner, 2007. <laughs> so, like, that's such a weird opening line. Like, it's, it's making a universal claim about people's moral norms, right? Yeah. All over the world, throughout history, people condemn this. And then it gives this one citation for it. Like, it was already very weird, but at least I thought maybe that Gardner wasn't just an example of somebody who condemns sexual assault, but was someone who did like cross-cultural studies on this. No. Right. What that citation is, is offenses and defenses, selected essays in the philosophy of criminal law. It's just a philosophy of law book. And it's not about like cross-cultural intuitions about sexual assault. So it really, oh. he really just is one person as an example who has condemned sexual assault. Oh, that's so weird. I would have thought, yeah, I totally assumed, oh, this must be a cross-cultural study yeah, on like, not at all. prohibitions against sexual assault. No, it's like yeah. a theory wow. of like the criminal law, like in a series of essays. Very weird. Yeah. Huh. Anyway. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, so the, like the gastronomy. No citations the gastron is fine is my point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> if that's the way you're going to do with them. Um, so then he says something about the psychological complexity of hunger, which is like important to his argument, right? So he's saying, well, look, even an appetite like hunger isn't so simple that it can just be like boiled down to this like uh, biological appetite. So he says, this is, I also found this weird. I don't know what you think of this. Hunger is not merely a disturbing sensation that can be quelled by eating. It is an attitude toward edible portions of the external world, a desire to relate to them in rather special ways. The method of ingestion, chewing, savoring, swallowing, appreciating the texture and smell, all are important components of the relation, as is the passivity and controllability of the food. The only animals we eat live are helpless mollusks. Our relation to food also depends on our size. Yeah. We do not live upon it or burrow into it like aphids or worms. I mean, that's all true stuff, but I really don't know what it has to do with. Uh, this whole thing is like, honestly, the strangest part of the, like a already very strange essay. And right. I like it's hard to, like, if, if you're a listener that hasn't heard us talk about other Nagel essays, I feel like we don't have this problem at, no. at like not like nothing uh, like this. This is, yeah. it's just bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's the late 60s, so maybe drugs are involved. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, like, the best I can make of it is he's trying to set the stage for what he wants to flesh out as a theory of sexuality that's completely about relations with other people yeah. in a way that's not just a biological necessity or drive. And he, I think he's setting that stage by saying hunger is actually way more than you think about our relationship to food. Right. And I don't know that, that it's necessary to do this. Like the only reason I can see that he wants to do this is because he's just defended the view that hunger perversions could exist. But I also think it's a, just a very weird, it's like seems pretty disanalogous. Like the complexity involved in the choices we make for eating like don't seem to bear too much to me on. Yeah, no, I think you're right that that's what he's trying to do. Like, it's a response to the skeptic. He says, like hunger, sexual desire has as its characteristic object a certain relation with something in the external world, only in this case it is usually a person, 
usually a person, rather than an omelet. And that relation is considerably more complicated. This adds a complication, allows scope for correspondingly complicated for perversions. Like, I just don't think this responds to the skeptic. If anything, if I'm a skeptic, I'm like, this is, this is what I'm, if you're going to tie yourself up in, in these kinds of knots to try to drag out a concept of perversion when it comes to hunger and, and appetite, then that's like, this is exactly the problem. But he says then that sexual attraction transcends the property uh, that makes a person attractive. And so now he's getting into... Like the omelet, the omelet example. Yeah, right. I think is worth it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's very important that the object of sexual attraction is a particular individual who transcends the properties that make him attractive. When different persons are attracted to a single person for different reasons, eyes, hair, laugh, intelligence, we feel that the object of their desire is nevertheless the same, namely that person. There is even an inclination to feel that this is so if the lovers have different sexual aims, if they include both men and women, for example. Different specific attractive characteristics seem to provide enabling conditions for the operation of a single basic feeling. So there's all, like, we're all in love with, there's something about Mary, you know, and like, we all love her, but for different reasons, maybe, but it's that same person. That's different from the case of an omelet. Uh, We don't just love a single omelet. He says, various people may desire it for different reasons, for its fluffiness, another for its mushrooms, another for its unique combinations of aroma and visual aspect. Very strange paper. Yet we do not enshrine the transcendental omelet as the true common object of their affections. Instead, we might say that several desires have accident. Instead, we might say, like, we don't talk about omelets this way. Instead, we might say that several desires have accidentally converged on the same omelet. And, and this is the key point, I think. Any omelet with the crucial characteristics would do as well. Right. So it's not like Mary, where it has to be Cameron Diaz. Um, right. It's, it's uh, you know, I just want that kind of omelet. Um, the same way of smoking, the same flesh distribution can't be substituted for a particular sexual desire. I wonder if this is pre, I think it's probably post Stepford Wives, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but I think it's this, this kind of idea that it, you can't just create like this android version of what you're attracted to. And right, that that's something right. like essential to attraction. It's interesting because I was having trouble with this whole passage for, for a couple of reasons. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, one, yeah, one, the omelet, it's, it's just funny what it says about people by the examples that they pick out, I guess. You don't like an omelet for its fluffiness? I like transcendental omelets is what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. The noumenal omelet. I guess I have no problem saying I want that omelet or whatever omelet you're going to make me. Like, even though like I, I like the separate aspects of the omelet, it doesn't seem so weird to me. Like, I don't know what he means by... by... Well, just like, let's say I get that omelet because they serve me first. Dave Seaver serves me, great omelet maker, by the way, uh, (laughs) serves me uh, the omelet first. It's not like you need my omelet. Like, you're happy for him to make you, like, that same omelet with those same same features. That's that's what I think he's saying. Yeah. Okay, good. And then the, the second part maybe is just coming from the other direction, which is... Maybe again, me, my mind being sort of ruined by what it means to like online date nowadays, 
But I think that, sure, like once you fall in love with somebody, if you fell in love with them first because you loved their sense of humor or whatever, it's still them that you want. You don't want a sense of humor. But we do kind of say, these are the features that I like in somebody. And it kind of doesn't matter who it is that I find as long as they have those features. Like those are the things. And so like we'll say, they have to have these criteria. Now, whether or not that's the way that actual desire works is not, I don't know. But it's not so weird to think, I like people with this particular sense of humor and this height and this, like, and then whether it's Mary or Martha, like, doesn't so much matter. I guess I think when it comes to that, that it's like you're making a prediction and maybe like a, like a fairly mm-hmm. accurate prediction about who you will be attracted to. But once you yeah. come down to like a specific person, then... Yeah. It's likely that, you know, someone with those exact same attributes but was a different person right. is not going to do it for you. Like, Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I like that. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. <clears throat> you've saved, you've saved. I've saved Nagel. <laughs> uh, it, this doesn't have to get retracted. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, he says that the importance of this point uh, will emerge when we see how complex a psychological interchange constitutes the natural development of sexual attraction, which we will see in actually vivid detail later in the essay. <laughs> this would be incomprehensible if its object were not a particular person, but rather a person of a certain kind. Attraction is only the beginning and fulfillment does not consist merely of behavior and contact expressing this attraction, but involves much more. And now out of nowhere, the best discussion of these matters that I've seen appears in part uh, three of Sartre's being in nothingness. And he says, it's influenced my own views. But it's very funny the way he talks about Sartre because he is praising the view and saying that it's influenced him, but he's also like taking (laughs) like side shots shots at him like every chance he gets. Yeah, I love, like, Sartre totally, like, uh, influenced me on this. He didn't really talk about perversion. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes me think that, like, he just, Nagel just in college read some being a nothingness and was like, oh, I love this. Like, I got to find a way to. (laughs) I think it's more that, like, what he gets out of Sartre is not any concept of perversion, but just, like, the concept of what we're trying to do when we are sexually interacting with another person. And I actually think that that is what Nagel is trying to do. And and the perversion thing is honestly, like, you could do this paper about sexual desire, and I think we would have much fewer problems with it like you wouldn't have to bring in fluffy omelets or that's the part of Sartre even though he thinks the language is obscure and we can uh, in quote some of that I think that might be what he's most interested in here yeah I think you're right he says what interests me is Sartre's picture of the attempt he says the type of possession that is the object of sexual desire is carried out by a double reciprocal incarnation and that this is accomplished typically in the form of a caress in the following way. I make myself flesh in order to impel the other to realize for herself and for me her own flesh, and my caresses cause my flesh to be born for me insofar as it is for the other, capital O, (laughs) as it is for the other flesh causing her to be born as flesh. The incarnation in question is described variously as a clogging or troubling of consciousness, which is inundated by the flesh in which it is embodied, right? 
So the idea, I guess, is part of a larger view about how we are trying to come to terms with the fact that there are other subjective lives besides our own. And sex is maybe the ultimate way of doing that. Like if you reduce them as an object, like a, a sex robot, that way the subjectivity it can't get off the ground. Um, but a successful sexual relation has, we both realize each other as beings with subjective lives. That's my like stab at what either of them are talking about here. I'm glad you got that from the circle <laughs> because I, like, I think I agree with, with what you're saying. It does read though weirdly like like there was nothing about the subjectivity in the Sartre quote. Like it's really when Nagel talks about about it. So so in reading Nagel's interpretation of it, I guess I understand what I never know whether to say Sartre or Sartre. <laughs> How the fuck? Sartre. Um, by saying it's like so, Americans like saying, decided to say Sartre just to yeah, avoid I know. that. That's problem. just the way. Yeah, yeah. it's like crepe. So he's saying like, okay, I'm, I am a subjective being who, who is going to like transport myself into my own flesh, causing her to transport herself into own flesh. And we will be able to relate to each other that way. And in some way know that each of us is doing that. So like we're doing yeah. it for the sake of truly understanding the other person's subjective consciousness. So he says, the view that I'm going to suggest, <laughs> I hope in less obscure language, is related to this one, allowing sexuality to achieve its goal on occasion and thus providing the concept of perversion with the foothold. I mean, like at this point... Right, if he, he says it differs from Sartre in allowing sexuality to achieve its goal. Oh, because right. He, I guess he's saying that Sartre says that this can never actually work. Right, right, right. Because yeah, yeah. we're trapped in our own subjectivity. So now we get to the erotic fiction section, of, <laughs> which I actually think, you know, as as funny as it is to see Nagel do this, like there's there's something that he's getting at here, I think. So he talks about Romeo and Juliet, who are at opposite ends of a cocktail lounge with many mirrors on the wall, which permit unobserved observation and even mutual unobserved observation. At some point, Romeo notices Juliet. So these are two people at a bar who kind of see each other. One of them, the guy, Romeo, is checking Juliet out. And he's moved somehow by the softness of her hair and the diffidence with which she sips her martini. And this arouses him sexually. If 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 you just need to like take ten minutes and pause this, listener, feel free at any point. You know you don't need to. Let us say that X senses Y whenever X regards Y with sexual desire. This I feel is beneath this, Nagel right now. Uh, this is the the most uh, egregious and unnecessary use of this particular. Yeah tick that analytic <laughs> philosophers have because I don't like he never brings up X and Y again yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. I think he was like oh yeah this is philosophy and so like <laughs> let's uh, let uh, P uh, entail not Q <laughs> anyway so then he goes back to Romeo and Juliet Romeo senses Juliet rather than merely noticing her and at this stage he's aroused by an unaroused object so he's more in the sexual grip of his body than she of hers. So I guess he's kind of getting aroused. 
physically, psychologically, mentally, and but she's like hasn't noticed him. Yeah, crucially because he set up the mirrors. <laughs> yes. Such that they can both be checking each other out and have no idea that they're checking each other out. Right, exactly. Which is, you know, the scale. Let us suppose that Juliet now senses Romeo. So now she senses him. And remember that X senses Y whenever X regards Y with sexual (laughs) desire. That was huge. (laughs) Uh, Really important. It's crazy because he could just have said without ever saying that. Let us suppose now that Juliet is sexually desirous of Romeo. Yeah. And that would have done this. <laughs> uh, Romeo then begins to notice in Juliet the subtle signs of sexual arousal, heavy little stare, heavy little stare, <laughs> dilating pupils, faint flush, etc. I like the etc. because it's like, well, you could have put the etc. before... <laughs> faint flush and dilated <laughs> pupils, you know? Like, if you're going to do heavy little stare and all of those, just kind of, like, finish your thought, I guess. I, I, <laughs> no, I loved it because he was like, here's my thing. Reader, go ahead and run with it. <laughs> I like that. Um, but then now, like, his arousal is still solitary because he doesn't know. That's my favorite sentence. I, I just, sorry. I have to, like, I have this highlighted as yeah. an island in this paragraph. His arousal is nevertheless still solitary. Yeah. It's like the saddest sentence. <laughs> <laughs> this could be the loneliest paper in Flops. <laughs> <laughs> but now, it really is just, like, it should be in a brown paper bag at this point. But now, cleverly calculating the line of her stare without actually looking her in the eyes he realizes that it is directed at him through the mirror on the opposite wall that is he notices and moreover senses which uh (laughs) see uh previous paragraph uh juliet sensing him this is definitely a new development for it gives him a sense of embodiment not only through his own reactions but through the eyes and reactions of another Okay, so now he notices not only that he is attracted to her, but that she might be attracted to him. And, like, you would think maybe we're quite there, but no. <laughs> there is a further step. Let us suppose... This, this, this is one this of my one, favorite yeah. lines. Because <laughs> I don't totally know what he means by this. Let us suppose that Juliet who is a little slower than Romeo, now senses that he senses her. Now, what do you think he means by a little slower? I literally <laughs> think that he is good. He's trying to say men are better at spatial uh, cognition, <laughs> and he's calculated the angles of the mirrors, and he caught that she was checking him out before she was able to catch that he's checking her okay. out. So not that she has some disability. But... <laughs> <laughs> well... Call it what you want, whatever that whatever that gender difference is. <laughs> this puts Romeo in a position to notice and be aroused by her arousal at being sensed at him. I think this is the key point, right? He senses yeah. that she senses that he senses her. <laughs> like this whole episode is just tongue twisters. He senses <laughs> that she senses that he senses her. This is still another uh, level of arousal for he becomes conscious of his sexuality through his awareness of its effect on her and of her awareness that this effect is due to him. 
once she takes the same step, so as slow as she is, she might eventually get there, right? Uh, senses that he senses, her sensing him, it becomes difficult to state, let alone imagine, further inter- iterations, though they may be logically distinct. It's such a weird thing. Right. <laughs> but if both are alone, they will presumably turn to look at each other directly and the proceedings will continue on another plane. Physical contact and intercourse are perfectly natural extensions of this complicated visual exchange and mutual touch can involve all the complexities of awareness present in the visual case, but with far greater range of subtlety and acuteness. Okay, I'm making fun of the language here, but I do think that it's describing something real. I think it's describing something that is a feature of sexual arousal, sexual attraction in its kind of ideal state. It's like uh, part of what's exciting about it is not just that you like this person, but that they reciprocate it. And like that just gets you into a different plane, as he says, to use actually his terminology there than you were before. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, I think it captures it well. And, you know, this account of sexual desire is relational. Like, I don't think it needs the, the sort of existential bringing of, of consciousness to incarnate, but it's enough to me that this is the account of what, whatever we call full-fledged sexual desire or ma- mature sexual desire as being about that relationship. And that's what's not there in, like, just watching porn. Yeah, or even, like, being with a prostitute. Or something like that. Right. He, he says, desire is not merely the perception of a pre-existing embodiment of the other, but ideally a contribution to his further embodiment, which in turn enhances the original subject's sense of himself. And that's why it's important that the partner be aroused and not merely aroused by aroused by the awareness of one's desire. The idea is the arousal is in part uh, a product of the other person's arousal, which makes you realize yourself not only as someone who can be subjectively aroused by somebody else, but we can actually be uh, arousing to others, I guess. And that awakens something in us that is related to sexual desire. I like the point that he makes that this is also just what a lot of human interaction is, like this sort of recursive understanding of the other person's mind. Yeah. And I think this must be the only paper to ever cite both Grice and Sartre in the same argument. Well, not cite, but to talk about. <laughs> to talk, well, he also cites uh, both of them, right? Oh, he does. He says, You're right. Christ, yeah. <laughs> uh, here I've been yeah, saying that's that right. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. We were yeah. Romans and confessions. <clears throat> that's whatever. right. Yeah. J- Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> zero. <Christ> and Sarge. <laughs> the Apostle Paul. Jesus pages uh, two, two through fourteen <laughs> zero, <laughs> or not zero, like forty-two or whatever. I don't know. Like, when is Jesus <laughs> supposed to have lived? <laughs> I, I think you can figure that out pretty easily, given that our whole year system is based on his life. <laughs> yeah. So it would be... <laughs> Maybe about 2,024 years ago. <laughs> no, no, no. But like, if you're citing it, like, do you cite like 34 or... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I hate to break it to you, but he's citing Paul. <laughs> Paul is quoting Jesus <laughs> verbatim. Uh, so, Okay. 
maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I do kind of have this question at this point as I'm reading the paper. All this is making sense to me. Like, I think this is a really interesting and cool account of sexual desire and it sort of captures the essence of, of like a, the kind of sexual desire that we might think is the natural kind or the ideal kind or whatever. Will this mean later on, though, that like if I like the cookbook, if I do get off on looking at if I have desire for naked women in a magazine, is that going to be a perversion? I think so. Yeah. Um, I do think this is why this art thing is actually kind of important. It's like this is what it is. And if it's not this, it can be said to be a perversion. So let me read this paragraph and then I'll uh, be able to continue the thought. The desire is therefore not merely the perception of a pre-existing embodiment of the other, but ideally a contribution to his further embodiment, which in turn enhances the original subject's sense of himself. I think I read this before, but I think like I guess I want what I want to like highlight this time is it somehow further identifies us as a person in the eyes of others. So it, it kind of grounds us in reality, like so that we're not in some virtual AI thing or something like that, or we're not just trapped in our own subjectivity. Because if we were, how could have we have had this effect on this other person? And, and that is part of the arousal. And so when he returns, he says, finally, to the topic of perversion, it really just is. If that criteria isn't met, then it might be, you just might be your pervert. <laughs> uh, right. So like intercourse with animals or infants and inanimate objects, they are in that first stage of where you're just getting hard at something. And I think pornography is that too. Right. So I think I have the, an answer to my own question, but yeah, he goes on then to say like the, he gives the examples of sadism and masochism as in one case, not truly treating the object with the, in the proper way. And in another case, not truly in one case, you're making yourself an object that's not fully like you haven't aroused person. anybody else. Yeah. So like the sadist doesn't depend on the, the other person to have like reciprocal arousal and thus ground his existence or anything like that. It's a perversion in that it is it is satisfied by conditions that have nothing to do with that other person's sexual arousal. It's just like bringing them pain. Which is not my understanding, which is very much third hand of S&M relationships. But I, I kind of feel like they are both aroused by each other and aware of the other person's arousal of them if it's like not a an assault or something like that and so yeah. but maybe part of the deal is you have to like push that down yeah know? i can't speak with with authority on it either like but i do think that the way in which we might think of like bdsm now might be very different from what he means as a, as a pure sadist or not very but at least like right. or it could be that people who find themselves where one is a masochist and one is a sadist like <clears throat> that works fine yeah. But he might actually say, like, he might commit, well, 1969 Nagel might commit to that, that a sadist and a masochist who are serving each other's needs that way aren't grounding their consciousness in the same way. And therefore, it's still a perversion. Yeah. I think, he, like, this is where that last little cop-out will come into play. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by Green Chef. We've been talking in this episode about 
gastronomical perversions. Well, Green Chef is the opposite of that. Green Chef is a meal kit company that's focused on providing healthy, nutritious food, and it has plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. So if you're vegan or vegetarian like I am, uh, or if you're gluten-free or even paleo or keto, things that I'm very much not, or even if you're just looking for well-balanced meals, Green Chef has a variety of recipes built to suit whatever your tastes are. It's its flexibility and its focus on those healthy ingredients that I find so personally appealing about Green Chef. It offers unique farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins. Going with Green Chef means that you're choosing healthy foods in a mindful way, not just things that'll fill you up or things that are quick and easy to make, but foods that will support a healthy lifestyle. And we want our listeners to be healthy. With Green Chef, you can count on meals that are good, good for your taste buds, good for your body, and even good for the planet. Here's one of the things I really like about uh, Green Chef is that if you're looking for things to supplement between those meals, snacks, they have a marketplace that's full of these kinds of foods. So it's sort of a one-stop shop that has high-quality snacks like grab-and-go breakfasts or brunch kits or 10-minute lunches, other ready-to-eat snacks, sides of veggies, and more. So if you're a fan of the idea of having a meal plan, having uh, meal kits delivered to your door, give Green Chef a try. Go to greenchef.com slash 60VBW and use code 60VBW to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. And just in case you're curious, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, a previous sponsor, but it is obviously adding to the wide variety of options that you now have on this meal plan market. And I think it's worth giving it a try. Again, that's greenchef.com slash 60VBW with code 60VBW to get 60% off plus 20% off of your next two months. Our thanks to Green Chef for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So what I wanted to ask is, now, this is, as he said, like a theory of desire yeah. and and whether desire can be perverted and and it's about inclinations. And now he's brought all this relational stuff to it. But if somebody simply senses, and by senses, I mean has sexual desire for somebody else. So if if I just from afar am like totally into somebody and it's never reciprocated, is he committed to saying that that is a perversion? Like it seems kind of like a high bar and, a, and like a one that's unfair to say of somebody that if they've only ever desired people where they've never had that Romeo and Juliet moment where they desire them back and they sort of ground their subjectivity and touch each other, that they have perversions because perversions are the inclinations. But are perversions the inclinations plus the action or is it like just the inclination? I think he wants to say it's just the inclination, but maybe the way out of it is something that I thought of as I was thinking to ask this question, which is Maybe he thinks that the perversion is not wanting that yeah, relation. That's right. And so whether or not it's unrequited doesn't matter. What you should be turned on by is the very thought that they might also like you. And when you're imagining, when you're fantasizing, you're fantasizing about somebody who will finally, after many calculations, discover that they're looking at you and you're looking at them <laughs> in the mirror. Yeah, or that that's going to be more arousing. 
like More that, like because because yeah. he accepts that Romeo when he first notices slow Juliet and she doesn't she doesn't know he's there he's still in that first step of desire which isn't a perverted desire it's just uh you know that's just the first stop to yeah. uh like a fully successful case and so I think that's fine that's why I think it has to be like an act and and not just a preference. I mean, I guess, no, you're right. It has to be a preference, but the, the idea is that this is good. You know, if it's on a Likert scale, like me just noticing a hot girl is a five on the Likert scale, but uh, me noticing them looking at me and then her like also noticing that I'm noticing her and we both get that, that's the seven, you know, like that's full. And that should be our preference. Like our preference should be for it to, to go, even if we never get to that place with a particular person, right. uh, it wouldn't be perverted as long as that was the thing that would have been ideal for us sexual attraction wise. Right. So I don't think it ever needs to get there. I think that all he wants to say for the non-perversion is that that's really the goal of your fantasy. Like what you're thinking when you desire somebody is that they desire right. you back. So somebody, say, who is watching pornography, who has this deep desire or wish that those people he was watching actually interacted with him and had this relationship with him might not be a pervert on this view. Yeah. But the person who has come to just purely objectify, who, who just is like, I want to see whatever, like ass. I like, And I don't care what the ass is attached to. Like, I just need to get off on ass. Then that might be that's, a perversion. That's a perversion, yeah. It's like liking the mushrooms on an omelet. <laughs> <laughs> right, or the fluffiness. Um. <laughs> I don't know. Like, this is, you, you never know, but like, I don't think that's the most common way of looking at porn is that you're like, no. that this, oh, if only, you know, Riley Reed like <laughs> felt strongly about me and was trying. And so maybe it's just perversion. Like, most people who look at porn are perverts, but I would think, if anything, it was almost the other way that somebody who was <laughs> going into porn, like kind of just imagining, you know, I'm the plumber that comes into the apartment uh, or the pizza delivery guy or whatever. I see what you're saying, but um, but like I think while it is sad that that's how people are approaching it. I think that at the heart of it, not not like any deep sense, you just like are imagining that that person might want you back. And that's just the fantasy of it. Like not like talk to you or care about you. The Aroused frustration. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I remember being like whatever, 14 or whatever, like the first time that I was thinking about this stuff, like the, the frustration was that that person on the screen wasn't there, wasn't right here maybe that's just not how it is anymore. Like, I'm not sure that that's how I would describe my <laughs> like <laughs> viewing of pornography, but maybe that's actually a problem for, or would be a problem. So what about like two girls? <laughs> like, you know, I'll, that, is that going to be I a perversion because... if you're watching that, you know, three girls, well, whatever. It's overridden by the fact that, all my porn passes the Bechdel test. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Mine too. But like, but you know what I mean? Like, then there's nobody yeah. for you to be. You're the view from nowhere. 
Right. Like, yeah. so, but that doesn't seem more perverted than... Yeah, and it also seems like a weird set of criteria for, like, if I'm imagining that they all of a sudden both turn toward me and are like, now you, come over here. Yeah. Like, is that less perverted? Is that what you're doing, though? Like, yeah, I'm not right. sure, I, but whatever. I, Maybe it's yeah. like, this is why... <laughs> But 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 anyway, let let let's finish this. Uh, That's what finish. we call applied applied philosophy. <laughs> let's finish. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, because honestly, I feel like it's all leading up to this. So I guess he thinks like a masochist and a sadist, and the like. Yes, and the definitely if you're uh, fucking something that isn't alive, like then it's only an awareness of your own sexual embodiment. So you're only getting yeah. step. You're still trapped on that first step. And so all that tells you is that you can be aroused, but it doesn't tell you anything about like your embodiment to other people. And so he goes to the, you know, masochist and the sadist. I guess he kind of concludes that that is a perversion on this schema. But then he, so then he's like, all right, let's go to two-party <laughs> heterosexual intercourse. And he says, none of them seem clearly to qualify as perversions, no matter what you do. Hardly anyone can be found these days to inveigh against oral genital contact. And the merits of buggery are urged by such respectable figures as D.H. Lawrence and Norm Norman Mailer. <laughs> the merits of buggery are urged by such respectable <laughs> figures as D.H. Lawrence, you know, author of Lady Shatterley's Lover and Norman Mailer, notorious pervert. But like, I don't know, like, is he kidding here? Like the merits of buggery? Like, I don't feel like in 1969 people were saying the merits of buggery. I did not know what to think about this because also like really, really weird appeal to authority <laughs> and, and, and a weird like, authorities dh lawrence <laughs> and, and norman mail yeah like we should say he he has also just said that um he doesn't think homosexuality counts as a perversion either just, just well no he hasn't yet said it at that point oh yeah yeah okay i'm sorry, I'm sorry. so first he's just saying that no matter what you do with your consenting partner even if it's buggery or oral genital contact you're good uh, at least as regards to perversion. Yeah. Like, so I read that as like, hey, look, who am I to say? Like, buggery seems weird to me, but like, as good a gentleman as Norm Baylor has said, it's fine. So I'm not going to say anything. Well, that's why I think he might be kidding, because I don't think people thought Norman Mailer was like a moral <laughs> authority on these issues. Like, so like, I think it's like a, a kind of dry joke but i it also could be not like like totally sincere it's like hey look yeah. dh lawrence and norma mailer it was lost on me because i know nothing about either of those two people okay then he goes to to talk about small small scale orgies <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh i think that he thinks that yeah like i think that's pushing it i think that that at that point you're you're no longer getting the natural relations well i think like like if you're like a active participant rather than being an exhibitionist or a voyeur like if you're just watching on the side and jerking off then no that's bad but if you're in the fray and you're turned on by other people who are turned on by you and being in the fray that might be okay or not i i would think so but he he has this passage where he says but look think about how hard it is to carry on two conversations simultaneously, let alone be in that orgy. So I think that he thinks that it's already being a degraded experience. Oh, yeah, that's right. I guess that's right. 
And that's just a small scale orgy. <laughs> that's just the small scale. That's not, not like the... a Caligula orgy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what about a gangbang? It was just like the one. <laughs> I'm going to guess that, he, that that would be per- perverse. <laughs> but what if it's a reverse gangbang? <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not clear whether homosexuality is a perversion, if that is measured by the standard of the described configuration. But it seems unlikely. I like the I like further re- further research will determine <laughs> whether uh, homosexuality like Mike. Yeah, I think and I think that his I'm glad that he at least said this, yeah. you know, back in nineteen sixty nine, because I think that on his theory, like there's absolutely doesn't matter like what the two people are. Yeah, except that he says it might be that there are certain gender roles that play a part in normal sexual attraction. And so if you mess that up, but I, I think he, he sets that up as something to, uh, to dismiss. To dismiss. Right. Yeah. So that's the account. It turns out that homosexuality, no. So that's good. Small scale orgies, uh, questionable, probably bad. <laughs> Uh, buggery good. Yeah. Coprophilia though. I didn't need to tell you. You didn't need to read this. We all knew that was wrong. <laughs> we all knew that was a perversion. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're in, you know, Munich. <laughs> uh, and then I get that little like kind of coda about not being necessarily a moral claim, which like I said, I think that kind of drains this of its, then I don't know what we're talking about between perversions and fetishes, but maybe fetish was not a general term, uh, as you suggested. I like this uh, line in the last paragraph, though. Finally, even if preferred sex is to that extent not so good as it might be, bad sex is generally better than none at all. I love that. Yeah. That's so so it's like, maybe you don't <laughs> go that whole train. So I guess that's where, like, if it's be like a prostitute or something like that, um, <laughs> then if that's, you know, the all you can do, then maybe that would be better than no sex. Right. But maybe not so just much know that it's not <laughs> as, like, the best sexual experience that you could have, <laughs> which I think people... Right. So it's just, yeah. It should not be controversial. It seems to hold for other important matters like food, music, literature, and society. Any last things to say, though, about that, the moral thing? Like, it really does take the the bite out of it, I agree. Um, Although I don't know for him. Like, it really could be that he thought that he was just saying, look, can it make sense to say that certain acts are more natural than unnatural? I just think that the whole reason people go into classifying things as natural and unnatural is for the next step, which is to say, therefore bad. And yeah. he, he seems to think like, well, that's obviously a mistake. And I think that that's obviously a yeah. mistake as well. But that's not why people are interested in sexual perversions usually. Yeah. And I think this reveals a kind of more platonist tendency in Nagel than, we, than we've gotten before. Like of this concept, sexual perversion. Say more, why platonist? Well, just that there is this kind of definition of perversion that is out there to discover if we just give the correct account and do the conceptual analysis so that this will cover the cases that we intuit are perverse and it'll also explain why they're perverse. I don't know. Maybe that's not a fair way of describing it. And like I said, I'm still wrestling with whether you could do this about 
his analysis of the absurd. And maybe it's just because of it's a more old fashioned term. But for some reason, this seems to be to be more of that objectionable kind of conceptual analysis. Again, especially when you drain it of the moral evaluation aspect of it, if you take that away, then I don't know what it is that we're talking about uh, anymore unless you think that there is this natural sex in this platonic way and then the like unnatural sex. And this analysis is getting at that distinction, but completely independent of whether this is... Morally good or bad. Yeah, good or bad. Which I think that's what he thinks he's doing. Yeah, I wonder if he thinks that any sex that's natural, non-perverse, can not be immoral, though. Like, you know, I wonder if he thinks that that's... It's enough. If it's natural, it's not immoral. I don't think so. At all. Like, if it's your, like, your best friend's wife, even if there's this mutual attraction, <laughs> probably not, yeah, right. you know. Right. Well, those are extraneous. Like, I mean, yeah, the things can be wrong not because of their natural status, but... And they can be but yeah, you're right, so the wrong that they're so right. <laughs> that they're right. So the last, I, I guess the, what I would say, though, is to build on what you said earlier, which I think is that it may be that the way that this paper is framed and like in particular sort of wrapped like sandwich with the, this is about this term sexual perversion. And then we're going to end with like reminding people that like it's conceptually independent of morality. I can see why you're saying what you're saying about the conceptual analysis. But I think that middle where he's discussing this this relational theory of sexual desire is, even on his own account in this paper, a fairly sloppy middle that is just trying to get at what the nature of sexual desire is without, I didn't sense in there like a fetish for, for conceptual analysis in, in the meat of this paper. I, I, I agree. Yeah, I don't disagree that like it's weird that it turns out to be about this concept perversion. But I, I think that if he had just said like, look, you might say some things, is it makes sense to say that some things are more natural than others? Like what would it mean to say that some things are more natural than others and just talk about it that way? I think it would be less sort of, yeah. Yeah, but like I actually think it's better to talk about it, I don't know, like this is a healthy desire than natural. Because natural, there's all kinds of natural things that people have that some are healthy, some are unhealthy. So like even in bringing in natural at that point, even in the context of desire, like that is to me, like I don't totally get, I, I think like close to the end, he says it can hardly fail to be evaluative in some sense because it appears to involve the notion of an ideal or at least adequate sexuality, which perversions in some way fail to achieve. But then he says, okay, that's a weak claim in itself since the evaluation might be in a dimension that is of little interest to us. And then he says, though, if my account is correct, this will not be true. So that, 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 that doesn't mean, oh my like, God, what, yeah. what are you saying then? Like, I, I, that was a very frustrating yeah. last bit. I was like, wait, what? Like, did he bake in the a moral evaluation this whole time? And I missed, yeah. So it is of interest and it is evaluative, but whether it's a moral evaluation or not is another question. And so that's what I mean by Platonist. It's like, okay, there might be this ideal sexual desire thing that is completely disconnected from morality and the good life. It's just, this is what this term is. And any deviation from that is a perversion. And like, that's what I 
you know, like it's not something I associate with Nagel, um, right. and not something I associate with his other papers. Like, I wonder what he, he's like, yeah. we'll have him on the podcast. Maybe probably not. After, <laughs> maybe it's just probably not after <laughs> this episode, but <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just early Nagel. I actually am curious to see in mortal questions, the dates of all of the other things that we've read. Cause a lot of them are not this early, right? That's right. And the absurd, I think is from 71. That's what I was thinking. So maybe you're right. This was, yeah. you know, dropped a little Although too much acid. Much <laughs> <laughs> right. Sometimes it's not the, the raw number of years, but the raw number of years since you were in grad school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but you can, you know, you can always imagine that 50 years from now, when somebody's discussing the work of Tamler Summers, they read your zombie paper and are like, wait, wait like, what? this isn't the Tamler I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll find me in that. Uh, I'll accuse you of being a Platonist for sure. <laughs> Well, I think my ghost uh, thing <laughs> will break their body. As someone glass. said, like <laughs> I could win the Nobel Prize and I'll still be that ghost guy, which I'm fine <laughs> with. Uh, I just want my Nobel Prize and then you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else to say on this? I think we've exhausted. All right. I think we've finished. <laughs> we finished. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. We finished very unnaturally. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard. <laughs>